recording. All right, before we get started tonight, I have just a few announcements to kind of make you aware of. Um, first of all, uh, Albuquerque trip 2015, that's right, over spring break. How many of you guys have gone to Albuquerque with us before? Man, it's a great trip, and, and there's some really cool ministries that are doing work down there that we get to partner with every year. And so if you haven't been, you need to go. If you have, you need to go again. Uh, 275 bucks for the week, and that's food and lodging and everything, so pretty cheap. We need, listen, if you would like to go, we need $100 by February 12th, I think? 19th. In spite of this. Okay, so February 19th, $100 deposit. Um, if for whatever reason money's an issue, man, I really want to go. I don't know if I can have 100 by that point or whatever. Um, talk to us, and we'll see what we can do, but we would love We'd love to take a big group. It is, it's a great thing that we have going. Um, I can remember one of the other two announcements. Uh, one of them is that we have volleyball after this tonight. There's going to be a group headed over to Sunnybrook around 10-ish. I'm sure they'll kind of holler it out when they start to leave. But um, what? Somebody say something? Okay. You should go do that, even if you're not good at volleyball. And I think everybody knows where Sunnybrook is, but you can ask or you can carpool or whatever else. Hey, Scott. What was our third thing? Volleyball, cereal. Albuquerque, yes. yes. Next week Next week is cereal um, night. And, and so cereal night, we need a better name for that. Cereal killer night, all right? So that's like if you really, you know, if you could kill some cereal, then it's cereal killer night. So, um, so bring, listen, okay, okay. Stop, I'm gonna delete that from the recording real quick. Um, um, let's see. Okay. Everybody, here's, what, here's the deal. We will have milk. Everybody bring your favorite cereal, and we're just going to have a buffet of cereal and all that stuff. So, um, say what? We'll bring lactose-free milk, nerd. Um, so, we'll, we'll have that taken care of, too. So, make sure you bring that. We'll probably send a tweet out or a reminder to kind of let you know, but it'll be a fun night. Be a good night. Um, tonight we are in Hebrews 8, so if you want to go ahead and go there. And while we do that, I would like to pray for us. <coughs> Dear God, um, as we dig into your word tonight, um, I just ask that you would speak to us and that you would... Um, your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts and that you would challenge us and give us a greater joy in Jesus, give us a greater joy in knowing him and, and the promises that come through him, um, this beautiful um, covenant that we get to be a part of with you. Um, let us see it for what it is and let us, um, let us just be grateful for that and, and be drawn to more worship. I ask you that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hebrews 8. All right. Um, as you're going there, if you're uh, if you're not already there, let me just let me just kind of catch us up to speed. Um, a, a number of you guys, you've been here all year and you've heard this, but for those who haven't, just to kind of know what Hebrews is aimed at, first century letter written to we believe 
Jewish Christians in Rome. We're, we're, we're 99% sure about the Jewish Christians part. We don't know exactly where, but, but we have reason to believe Rome. And these are Christians who at one point were practicing Judaism, who were practicing the law found in the Old Testament, and then they learned about Jesus and, and believed him to be the promised Messiah um, that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And so they um, converted over to that, gave their lives to him, began to devote themselves to that practice. But like so many um, churches in the first century in Rome, there would have been a tremendous amount of pressure upon them, especially Jewish converts, uh, pressure from their family. And, and so that pressure from family ends up um, costing them economically because their job is tied to their family and it costs them socially because of all their friends and family and they're no longer part of the synagogue and it costs them um, in their kind of tradition and religious experience. And so what seems to be happening with all these um, readers of this letter is, is that many of them are wondering, is there any way for me to go back on this? Can I still get Yahweh? Can I still get the God spoken of in our, in our scriptures in the Old Testament without going through Jesus Christ? Can I just slip back into that? And so the writer of Hebrews writes to say basically, first of all, no, you can't. There is no other way to God except for through Jesus. And second, why would you want to? He, he, he wants to line up for them how much greater um, Jesus is and, and how much greater um, the, the life that they've been given in Jesus is in spite of the hardship, in spite of the trouble, in spite of the persecution, that, that, that the life they are given in Jesus is still better than that. And so he lines through all the ways that Jesus is better. And, and, and interspersed with those, he, he comes back to these exhortations, persevere, hang in there, persevere. We're in the middle of a section right now that really lines out the high priesthood of Jesus. Um, he, starts, he started that in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6 took a little break to get into um, some of the stuff about, um, it was basically an exhortation about falling away, and, and, and you do not want to be caught up in that falling away from Christ. So he kind of, you can see at the end of 5, he starts in Melchizedek, and then he, I don't know if it's tangent, I don't know if it's intentional, but he goes back into an exhortation, and 7, which, which is where we were last week, that's where he gets back into the Melchizedekian priesthood and says that Jesus has that kind of priesthood. So here's what he's doing. He's outlining how Jesus' priesthood is better, but he says that actually that priesthood brings with it some other things. So when the priesthood, which is a like key um, fundamental part of the Old Testament covenant, he says if that changes, then other things in the covenant are bound to change as well. You can't just switch the priesthood in the middle. Other things go with it. And in this chapter, he's going to tell us basically that the the entire covenant itself changes. We got hints of that last week when he says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Um, so, so we got hints of it, but he's going to outline that more fully here. But, but eight really does flow right out of seven. And so I want to make sure that we kind of get in the right spot. Look back a few verses, chapter seven, verse 26 through 28. Um, here's what I'm going to do actually. Um, Bree, I'm going to have you read. We're trying something. We, we got the mic here recording, so you're going to have to read extra loud tonight. So read verses 26 through 28 of 7, and then go ahead and read the first two verses of 8 also. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, 
first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have we have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up and not man. All right. Um, so you have in verses 1 to actually at the end of 7, you have this. Um, this is the kind of high priest we need. And he outlines it holy and blameless and and true and, and able to continue on in the presence. And then he goes into eight and says, here's the main point of what we've been saying. Let me sum it up for you real quick. We have that high priest. We have the high priest that we need. We have that in Jesus. And he, he uses that to kind of transition into this, some of the implications of the priesthood. Last week, we talked about the different holy places, the, the holy place in the tabernacle where only the priests could go and the most holy place where only the high priest could go and only on one day of the year and only after um, going through all the ceremonies to make himself pure and only after offering a sacrifice for himself could he then go into the most holy place, the presence of God to make atonement. The writer of Hebrews actually talks about, says that Jesus goes into holy places now for us, um, but he says that those holy places are actually the throne room of God that those things that he actually ministers in the heavenly places, in the true tabernacle, the one that is actually um, real. He'll, he'll trace that out here in a little bit more in verses 3 and 5, just a little louder this time, Brie. <laughs> you can do it. I believe in you. Was that yelling for you? Was that you shouting earlier? Okay. All right. <laughs> for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. All right. Um... So he says that the priests here have something to offer, and likewise, Jesus needed to have something to offer. Chapters 9 and 10 go into to major detail on that, what he offers, the kind of blood that Jesus offers, and how that compares and contrasts with what the Levitical high priest had offered for forever. And then he says this in verse 4, if he were on the earth, then he would not be a priest. Um, why is that? Why would he not be a priest if he was on the earth? Because they are already priests, and they are from the tribe of what? Levi. Levi. And, and the author pointed out to us last week that this one's from the tribe of Judah. Judah. There are no earthly high priests from the tribe of Judah. They're all from the, line, the lineage of Levi. And so he says, if he's on the earth, then he, he doesn't qualify. But he's, he's actually a part of something bigger, something better, something more true. And then he says something fascinating in verse 5, that he says that he serves... In, in a different kind of tent. Let me read it. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he's about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So what he's saying actually is that not only is Jesus ushering in like a newer, kind of better and improved covenant, what he's saying is the ministry that Jesus has, the place where he's ministering, the old covenant was based on that one. 
which is kind of crazy to think. The old one that we have, Jesus doesn't just come and get kind of a new shiny one. Actually, this has been the real one all along, and the old one was just a copy and a shadow of that. It was always pointing to this, and he says something really kind of interesting. This is why when Moses is called up on the mountain, up to Mount Sinai, Exodus 25 through 30, you'll see God gives all the details for what the tabernacle should look like. This is how you make it. And he gives him some very um, precise specifications for how it should be built. But he doesn't just say this is how it should be built. He actually, the, the, the writer here points out, he actually shows him a pattern. Like, like I, I think gives him something visible. A blueprint or a model. There are some scholars who wonder if actually God actually revealed like his throne room to Moses. To allow him to see this. In Exodus 25, 40, that's what he quotes here when he says, See that you build everything according to the pattern. Um, that you were shown on the mountain. Literally in the Hebrew, it actually says the pattern which he caused you to see. So it, it, it's a visible thing that Moses appears to be looking at when he goes up on the mountain. And that is based in a greater reality that is in heaven. Now, don't get too caught up in the idea that it's a tent or whatever. I'm, I'm not saying heaven is one giant tabernacle or one giant tent, but that the, the things that are in the tabernacle are pointers to a greater reality of something that was always taking place, that was, that was always up there in heaven. And now Jesus is offering sacrifices at this. this. This goes back to what we said last week. The New Testament, Jesus was not plan B. It wasn't that the old way didn't work, and so now we bring the new way. No, no, this is the way that it was always going towards. The tabernacle was not an end in itself. It was a pointer to something greater, to something truer, to the ultimate reality. He says it was merely a shadow of what was to come. Read verses 6 through 7, Bree. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no opportunity would have been sought for a second one. All right. Getting louder, it's better every time. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So it says that Jesus is, is the, not only is he a better mediator, so Jesus doesn't just come in and become a better mediator than those high priests in that old covenant. He says Jesus actually ushers in an entirely new covenant with himself, something we kind of touched on there. But Jesus ushers in a whole new covenant. And he says it's, it's a better covenant because it's enacted on better promises. Better promises. And the question is, what are those better promises that it's enacted on, the writer's actually about to share them all with us. Um, they were, those better promises were recorded 600 years before the writer of Hebrews put this, um, or wrote this letter here. And, and he's about to quote from that here in just a second. What follows actually is the largest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. So of all, the, there are all kinds of places where the New Testament uses the scriptures of the Old Testament to, to support its point. This is the longest continuous quote of Old Testament uh, of one passage in the Bible, which means it's, it's important. It's one that, that the writer goes, no, you got to hear all of this. you got to get all of this. This matters. And, and it's from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. He'll quote it verbatim, verses 31 through 34. Um, before we read it real quick, just a little bit of background. This is, anybody know, when did the Old Covenant come into to being, like the old, the old law covenant that he's talking about? Okay. After the Exodus, after the Exodus, when Moses or when, when so, so God actually does establish a number of covenants throughout the Bible. 
one with Adam, one with Noah, one with Abraham. But the Mosaic covenant that we're talking about, the Old Testament covenant is the one that comes after God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. And, and as he pulls them out into the wilderness, it's that point that he sets before them the law and he makes this covenant that I will be your God, you will be my people. This, this covenant, this law is what's going to set them apart from everybody else in the land that God is going to bring them to. It's, one, it's what's going to designate them as his, as gods, and not just one of those other people worshiping all the different pagan gods in that region. They're going to be separate. They're going to be unique. And actually, we see this covenant kind of lined out throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, all the way through there. And, and it's interspersed with narrative, but, but God will keep coming back to various facets of it. And then Deuteronomy becomes, especially towards the end, basically kind of lays out the conditions of this covenant. Um, the prophets, when they're prophesying, most people um, see the prophets as always looking forward and, and talking about things that are coming in the future. Actually, the prophets, more than anything, are pointing backwards, pointing backwards to Deuteronomy and those books just before, and saying, remember the covenant you made with God. Remember the covenant you made, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me go real quick to Deuteronomy 30. Okay, this is a passage that a number of scholars will point to, like the back half of Deuteronomy 30 really sums up it's, it's towards the end after all the different covenants and all the different, or all the different laws and rules and, and ceremonies have been laid out. And this is kind of Moses' last little speech standing up before the people before he's going to die and pass on leadership to Joshua. He says this in the back half of chapter 30, um, verses 15 through 20, actually, is what I want to read, and I'll read it. It says this, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love Yahweh your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. See, so this is what you have, the promise of blessing if you obey the covenant. This was the covenant, and, and here's the other half. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death blessings and curses now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love Yahweh your God listen to his voice and hold fast to him for Yahweh is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers Abraham Isaac and Jacob what the covenant is is this is what it looks like for the people of God to live in the land that God has given them this is how you do it. And so Moses says at the end, when, this, is, this is the deal of the covenant, that if you obey and if you follow me and you do these things, then blessings come and God is going to be with you and he'll take care of you. But if you choose to go against those things, then God will be against you, that, that, that you can expect correction, you can expect discipline, you can expect punishment to come your way for those things. Don't buy in, okay? Don't buy in to the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different. That, that the God of the Old Testament was just this, this God who kind of made a covenant with these people, but at any moment he might fly off the handle and get really angry with them and, and send down hellfire and brimstone. Like That's often the picture that's painted of, the, of God in the Old Testament. 
that he, that he was almost a loose can that he's just a cannon that he's just all about wrath and anger when the when the old testament actually describes him over and over again as slow to anger abounding in love and he proves it because within one generation of saying these words they move into the land of Canaan Joshua is their leader, and Joshua dies away. Within one generation, they already begin to succumb to all the things around him. And they begin to take part in the fertility rituals that they could use to, to try and get Baal to bless their crops. They begin to offer their children in, in, um, in the fire as sacrifices to the god Molech. And, and they begin to abuse the poor amongst them and to, and, and to, and to um, administer injustice to all of them, and, and, and I mean, almost immediately they turn away from him. And time after time, they, um, they turn away from him, and, and, and God brings discipline, and then he brings restoration, and he restores them. He brings discipline, he brings punishment, and then he restores them when they repent. And, and, and he's, not, he's not flying off the handle. He's staying true to his word. He's faithful to what he said he will do. A parent, if, if, when I tell my kids, if, if, if you run into the street, you're going to be in timeout or you're going to get a spanking or you're going to lose a toy or whatever, and then they run into the street and I do nothing, that doesn't make me gracious. It makes me a bad parent because they learn pretty quick that I'm not true to my word. God is true to his word in the Old Testament. And so here's what happens. They move in and he works to restore them and, and works to them and tries to bring them back. There's a period in, in 1000 B.C., when David becomes king, and everything seems to be going right, and he's got the, the kingdom pointed towards God, and it only lasts again about a generation. Solomon begins to move things apart, and, and the, the kingdom divides after Solomon into the north, which we call Israel, and the south, which we call Judah. Do you know how long, we want to talk about God being slow to anger, how long God waits before Israel is finally punished and destroyed and done away with because of her sin? I'm talking about the northern kingdom. Depending on how you date the Exodus, which there are kind of two major theories on that, between 500 and 700 years. That is, that is the definition of slow to anger, that they, would, that they would rebel against him and abandon him over and over and over again for five centuries in spite of his kindness, in spite of his goodness, before God finally says, I told you this is what's going to happen, and he sends the Assyrian army, and in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is destroyed. Jeremiah is sitting in the southern kingdom, and he's, he's sitting right as he sees the empire of Babylon start to move this way, and, and destruction is looming over the southern kingdom of Judah because they've been doing the exact same thing, so it just took them a little bit longer to get there. The northern kingdom continued, if you read through 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, the northern kingdom just got worse and worse all the time. The, the southern kingdom would have like four bad kings and then a good king who would start to right the ship. And so it took them a little bit longer. But it's, it's, it's uh, 586 is when they're destroyed. But, but Jeremiah has seen it coming. God has told him Babylon's coming and they're going to destroy it. And, and, and Jeremiah's job is to prophesy to a bunch of people that, that he knows aren't really going to listen. And this is the problem that Jeremiah sees and he knows, and he knows it because God told it to him, that these people have hearts that, like, they just won't. They, they won't obey. It's like they, they can't, and, and the law is there, and the covenant's been given to them, but there's something broken inside of them, and so they're doomed to destruction. 
We talked about this last week. We were made to know God, and we were made to serve Him, and yet sin undoes both of those things. It separates us from Him, and it hinders our ability to choose what is right, to be able to serve Him properly. But, but Jeremiah, as the Babylonian army is making their way down to Judah, as he knows he's going to see friends and family either, either slaughtered or carried off in chains to Babylon, looks forward to this day when something better will come. When something greater, when, when Yahweh is going to do something new. And he says these words in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Here in our text, there are verses 8 through 12. Bree, you want to read that? But finding fault with his people, he said, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Some beautiful words um, in, in that passage, this beautiful looking ahead to a, to a better day. There are three things, just briefly, three things that, that are lined out in there that are going to be different about the new covenant. Three things um, that God will do in the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about. Number one, he says, I will put my laws in their hearts and minds. And I don't think what he means there is that they'll have it memorized. That was actually something that was kind of commanded all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, right? That you have these things like in your mind. So I don't think he's talking about that. He's talking about an internalization, that, that religion, that my interaction with God will flow not from an external list of rules that I follow, but will flow from something inside of me. There's actually another prophet that was living right around the same time as Jeremiah named Ezekiel who prophesied something very similar when God said this, that one day I'm going to take my people and I'm going to take that heart of stone that they have that cannot do what is right and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit inside of them is what he says so that they'll be able to walk in my ways. That's what I think Jeremiah is talking about, that there's going to be not just the knowledge of what to do but the desire to do it that that ability takes place in the new covenant, the desire to do it. Um, second, he says this, they will all know me. Okay, from the least to the greatest, you don't have to go around everybody and say, you need to know God. He says, all my people are going to know me, that there's going to be like a personal level experience of me that everyone can, can experience, not just the priests and not just the kings and not just the prophets, um, but, but everyone's got the ability to know God now that something different is going to take place, something new is going to happen, and, and they're going to be able to know him, I believe, in a way that, that Old Testament, I mentioned this, it's not that nobody in the Old Testament knew God. You can't read the Psalms and recognize and think that nobody knew God. But, but nobody in the Old Testament had the ability for God himself to dwell inside of them. Nobody was able to get that close. And so they're able to know him. These are those two things that we talked about. Because the new covenant brings this, the ability to serve him as we were made to do, the ability to know him as we were made to do. And the third thing is this, I will remember their sins no more. 
Now, again, don't get confused and think that God didn't forgive sins in the Old Testament. He does. Over and over again, he forgives sins. The difference here, I think, is that this is the foundational point that, that everything starts from. All your sins are wiped clean. It's not like a, hey, if you join in this covenant, then every year you'll have a priest who will go and make atonement for your sins, and we'll kind of start the clock over and everything's good. No, no, he says, from the get-go, you place your faith in Jesus, and everything is wiped clean. That's what enables one and two, is that three is true. That, that I will have mercy on them, that I'll forget their sins. I will remember them no more. And, and so all of that is done away with. And, and so there's a, there's a new starting place in the new covenant, a better one. Read real quick verse 13, Bree. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. All right. Um, this is this is what he gets at. By the way, th- there are some people who believe that God's plan, we, I, I think we touched on this last week, was always Israel. And so the church is kind of a filling gap until we can get to restoring Israel again. That's what God's ultimate goal is, to get the Jewish people back to him. Um, and, and so that's kind of where he's going. And they see a lot of these prophecies, Jeremiah 31, like this, that the day is coming where I'll make a new covenant with Israel. And they say, see, it said a new covenant with Israel, a new covenant with Israel. That's, and so they see these prophecies as looking forward to that day when God will do a new thing in Israel. The, the problem with that, from my opinion, is that the writer of Hebrews says that it's happening at that moment, that it's already started happening. And so that's why I have to believe what I think the Bible clearly teaches, and that is the church is the new Israel, that God's chosen people are now um, the church, those who follow him. And so, so this is where he goes, but this is what he says. New, by definition, declares the old to be obsolete. New, by definition. So w- when a company creates a new line of a car or a new uh, line of the iPhone or a new line of whatever, it by definition says that there was something wrong with the other one. It didn't have everything we need. And so this is what the writer's saying. God gave us a new and better covenant. Why would you go back to something that clearly wasn't enough? Clearly doesn't cut it when you have all of this in Jesus that you want, when you have the ability to have a new kind of heart that wants to obey him, that doesn't have to be enslaved to sin, that is able to know him, and that is able to operate from a, from a guilt-free forgiveness of sins. We'll take a break, and then Scott will get up and and take us a little further in this. All right, let me have your attention. I'm going to ask for your answers uh, to that question of what are some bad reasons people people use to motivate them to to do God's commands or obey God. uh, I will ask for those here in a little bit, Um, but I want to start with kind of the bigger picture. So, from Jeremiah 31, or Hebrews 8, where we were, uh, the, author's, he's, the author of Hebrews is pointing back to this, this prophecy, this statement, this vision in, from Jeremiah that's describing a day when, like Drew said, it will no longer be about external things, it'll be about internal things. And he says things like, you know, I will write it on their minds and, and write it on their hearts. It'll be, it'll be in them, and, and they'll know me. Um, and, and they won't have to go through these sacrifices in order to be right with me. They'll, 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 they'll know me. And, and so I want to start with this, this bigger concept that simpli- simply that 
Throughout the Bible, over and over and over, God reminds us that there is our way of doing things, and there, there's God's way of doing, doing things. And, and he says things like, my ways are not your ways. My ways are above your ways. Um, he, he points out in Romans that, that we have a temptation. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Drew alluded to um, what the Israelites fell into. And it was simply just worshiping creation. This is our way. This is our natural tendency. We, we just love the things that we see. We love the earth, the ground. We love people. We love uh, money. We love sex. We love food. We love, we love these created things. And God says, no, no, no. It's, it was never meant to be that way. In fact, you, you, he, he says, you become like what you worship. And so God says, my way is worship me. You were created to, to worship me. That's another way. He, Jesus says, hate your enemies. Our natural instinct when someone does us wrong is to dislike them, to hate them. And Jesus says, love your enemies. That's, that's my way. He says, uh, our natural way, our way is to want to be great, is to want to be important, is to, want to, is to want to be the best, the top. And Jesus says, no, 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 be, be a servant. Like, be the least. That's, that's God's way. It's Jesus' up down, upside-down way of, of life that he saw things. It's just different and backwards from the way we do things. Um, the Bible says that we tend to focus on what is seen and temporary. And God says, no, no, no. In 2 Corinthians, it says, focus on what is unseen and eternal. Um, we want control. And God is love, and he's called us to love. Um, we are natural. We, we were born, in John 1, it says, we are born of a husband's will. We are born natural, like something that, that two people decided. And in John 3, he says, no, you must be born again. Like there must be, a, there needs to be a spiritual birth of with, of with from with new life is, is born from God. And so there's, over and over throughout Scripture, there's this our way of doing things and God's way of doing things. And so deal, coming down a little, a little more specific to Hebrews 8, he starts to deal with these, these outside-in kinds of things. Like that, this is our way of, of focusing on things. Is we want we think outside in. We think we think external things, and God's way is inside out. That's that's His way. It's inside out change. We focus on external realities. God deals with internal realities. Um, we focus on actions and expressions, um, and and God deals with He deals with us. He deals with our identity. He deals with our heart. Uh, we focus on works, and God deals with our heart. Um, we focus on, when, when sin comes into our life, we tend to, like weeds, just chop off the weed uh, above ground. And, and God deals with the root underneath. And, and this, is a, this is a constant thing throughout Scripture that he continues to point us to, and the author of Hebrews is wanting them to see. That like, why would you turn back to something when God deals with something so much greater. Why would you turn back to our way when you can have God's way? And so this change, go to this first slide, the, the change from the old to the new is a switch from an outside-in men, outside mentality to an inside-out reality. Okay, it's, 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 it's not that, like Drew said, it's not that the old, the, the, the law was, was broken, it's, it's that, that um, when people used it and abused it and focused on it, they focused on the outside-in Kind of mentality, 
And the author is pointing out, no, don't turn back to that. You have something greater. You have God wanting to put it in you and he, he wanting, him wanting this to be an inside out reality because the reality is God has always been about this. He's always been about the heart. He's always been about inside realities. So I want to give you a few examples to see this. You have Abraham. Abraham was called by God and it says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's his first, this next slide. Genesis 15, 6. It says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. It always, this was before the law. This was before God had spelled out what he wanted his people to do and how he wanted them to act and, 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 God, and Abraham was counted as righteous. This has always been the case. Inside reality has always been God's way. Here's another example. David um, David was God's chosen king, but he chose him when he was a shepherd boy. And the people's choice, which was Saul, who was big and strong, and um, he was rejected. You have, you have God's, God's choice and then the people's choice. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the next slide, uh, Samuel is standing before all of David's brothers, and he's going one by one, is this him? And God's going, nope. Is this him? And God's going, nope. And Samuel's going, are you sure? Because this guy looks awesome. He's tall, he's big, he's strong. He said, no, 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 this is what he said. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or, or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Another example, um, Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, constantly going after them. In fact, if you want to read a pretty strong rebuke of Jesus to the Pharisees, read Matthew 23. Um, and he just goes off on them. Woe to you. Calls them hypocrites. Calls them blind guides. He, he, he accuses them of doing things like tithing mint and dill and tithing spices. Okay, This is, this is the length to which they, they would go to, um, to display their righteousness was they would grow spices in their garden, and then they would cut up the spices, and then a tenth of the spices they would give to God, and then they would keep, right? And it's like, oh, wow, you guys are so dedicated. You even, you even tithe your spices? It's amazing. And, and God says, no, 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 Jesus says, no, you're hypocrites because you're leading people astray. You're acting so righteous in this, and yet you, he says, you, you basically, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're, you're focusing on something tiny, little, and you think that that's somehow, but you're missing something huge here. Uh, and so he says things to him, to them all the time about their fruit. And he says in Matthew 7, this next one, 17 through 20, he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So God has always been about um, the internal realities, not, not external mentalities. So, which leads me to where I kind of want to focus in a little more on, um, and, and more of the kind of the where, where the rubber meets the road, and, and where some of this stuff gets lived out, I think, on, in, in our heart on, on, on a daily basis, sometimes in our attitudes, and, and that's the difference between legalism, which would be our way, and life in the Spirit, which would be God's way. So, so legalism is actually, this, the word's not found in the Bible. 
um, but it comes from this word legal, which is related to the law. And so it's, it's, it's related to, it's, it's kind of a certain attitude about God's law, um, his, his rules, his commandments. Um, and, and so a perfect example of, of legalism, a perfect example of how this happens is in Romans 9, it's this next section, Romans 9, 30 through 32. It says this, What shall we say? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, so, so basically what we're saying is the Gentiles who didn't pursue God, who didn't follow his laws, became righteous because of their faith in Jesus. He says, but the Israelites, they pursued the law. They pursued the law that was supposed to lead them to righteousness, but they didn't. And he asked the question, verse 32, why? He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That he's referring to Jesus. So here, here's the first line about legalism. Legalism begins when faith is not the engine of obedience. You think about that line, the engine of obedience. Legalism begins when faith is not the engine of obedience. What do I mean by that? When, when faith is not the motivation for why we do the things we do. That's when, legal, that's when legalism begins. When rules are followed in order to manipulate authority. Um, I think this person might be lost on most everyone here except for one and, and myself. Um, you guys know who Eddie Haskell is? Anybody know who Eddie Haskell is? A few of you? Okay. It's lost on young people. Um, so leave it to Beaver. How about that? No show? Leave, ah, leave it to Beaver. Yeah, my parents told me about that once. Black and white something? I don't know. Um, something about a beaver? No, it's a person. Beaver's a, guy, a little kid. His name is Beaver. Unfortunate name. Um, but still. So leave it to Beaver. So... Eddie Haskell was the, the, the friend of Leave it to Beaver's, leave it to Beaver, Beaver's older brother. I can't remember his name. Not important. Wally. Nice. Um, so, impressive. So, uh, Eddie Haskell was the older brother. And Eddie Haskell in front of the parents was always just like, was nice and polite and friendly. And then as soon as, as, soon as they got behind closed doors, he was the instigator of all the evil and all the bad things that they did. And so he, followed, he knew how to follow the, the rules in front of the right people to make the right impressions to, 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 so people can make the, the, the inappropriate judgments about him. But it wasn't really true of him at all. And he always stands as a, as a, as a reminder to me of what happens when we learn how to follow laws or rules or commands um, with the wrong heart. It's when religious activity is done um, to, mani to manipulate God. So, when faith is not the engine of obedience, what is? What, 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 are th what are some things you came up with? What are some bad reasons that people are motivated to follow, to obey God? Yeah. Reputation. Okay. To have a reputation. Okay. Yeah. To, to impress someone, to please someone. Money. Okay. Maybe in some settings. Yeah. 
I don't even have to know. I just got Anthony is raising his hand. Okay. When you said to get directed in combat, like to kind of like God, I did my best, but they're not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, think about. I mean, that's 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 real. More. I mean, more real than we're probably willing to admit. Okay, God. So you're telling me, if I if I do this, you're gonna. What are you What are you gonna do? Like if, so, if I give you this, you, what are you going to give me? H- how are you going to? And and listen, I, I think we're all weak. We've all been in those places, but but it's it's recognizing the motivation because motive matters, and it's going. I, it, deep down, what we're really saying is, okay, I'll I'm going to cover my bases here, so that you have to do X. Right? Any, anything else? I know one was said earlier. Fire insurance. Would be a good right. Yeah. I get out of hell free card. Uh, if I just do these right things, like if I, so if I just do this stuff, you're you're we're good. Okay, cool. Um, and and it's 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 not out of relationship with God. It's it's not a re- recognition that that God is a loving God who desires to be in relationship with His children, who who uh, He wants them to um, to to live for Him and. And, and thrive and, and accomplish the things he's called them to do. So legalism begins with this, this, this mentality that, that faith is not the engine of obedience. But, but legalism is not obeying the law. It's, it's, not obeying the, it's not that it's obeying the law. That's not legal. God has called us to, and, and so we should have a heart that wants to follow, wants to obey. And so it, it's not obeying the law unless... Um, it's done with this wrong heart. It's it's done with with wrong motives. Legalism is not also pursuing godliness, um, unless that one's pursuit of godliness. Now everyone, you start to hold your preference and your expression as the biblical norm. Is when you start to hold everyone else accountable to what the specific. The preference, the, the specific expression that God may be calling you to is when you hold everyone to that, then it becomes legalism, which is this next one. That legalism spreads when we push others to our personal preference and expression as the biblical preference or principle. Like, like legalism is spread when we start to push our ideas onto others, and, and, and that's where it becomes about something else. Um, Personal preference and expression is is all throughout Christianity. In fact, there's a great book um, called I'm thinking on the fly here. It's never really good. Um, it is Streams of Living Water is the name of the book. Streams of Living Water by a guy named Richard Foster, and he describes five different streams of the church and and five different um, expressions of God's church and the evangelical church which is the one that most of us are probably in is one of those streams and there's four others and and his whole point is he gives throughout this book he gives uh, a biblical reference he gives a historical reference he gives a contemporary reference in terms of people who lived in this way and taught this way and and kind of interpreted scripture and lived it out in this way um and and it's it's pretty it's pretty humbling to go wow so the evangelical way isn't the only way, believe it or not. It's crazy, I know. Um, but there, it, there are many different expressions. And so when we start to 
say, no, no, our, our way of doing church and our way of, um, it becomes, when we start pushing that, it becomes legalistic. So next one, legalism is motivated by control. Legalism is motivated by control. Control to control my outcome because grace is out of my control. Grace is messy. And so legalism is a lot easier. I can just check the boxes. I can be in control of my destiny, my faith, my, and God's, that's not God's way. Uh, also a control of others because trusting God with others is, is out of my control. And so I need to learn how to trust God with others. Um, tr- sorry, trust others with God is what I mean. When I trust someone else to God, I need to, I need to learn it. It's not my job to control. Here's the next one. Legalism is trusting in myself. Legalism is... So turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. I, I really want you to, to, to know these verses if you, haven't, if you don't have them down already. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 6. Listen, listen to what the same prophet says. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an, in an uninhabited Salt land. So turn to the next slide, Drew. So this is a picture of a desert shrub. Um, and, and I think it's kind of helpful to see uh, what happens when we start to operate by our own strength and power. When we start to, you know, manipulate or serve or control, serve in a way that benefits us or control others and not out of, out of love, it, it, we, we run out. We dry up, um, and we become, we dead. We become dead. We, we, we dead. We dieded. Um, yeah, you know, past tense, whatever it is. It's a good reminder. It's what legalism le- leads to. You see, life in the spirit is quite a bit different than that. The next one, Drew, life in the spirit is following the biblical preference or principle under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, so instead of, instead of our own personal preference, it's, it's, the whole, it's the biblical preference. Instead of by our own strength and power, it's under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, His strength and power. See, life in, life in the spirit is exactly that. It is life, which means... There was death before, and the Bible's clear that we were dead in our sin, and God made us alive in Christ. Um, we, we, we now have a new way, a, a new source of life in, in God's Spirit. So, so when, when, the, when the author of Hebrews is pointing to this, and, and, and Jeremiah is talking about this, and he, he quoted Ezekiel that re- talks about the Spirit coming, so... There is this, in the Bible, there is a progression of God's 
presence in the life of his people. Okay, so in the garden, right, you have fall, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You have this bigger story of God. So in the garden, you have God, it says in chapter 3, he was walking in the cool of the day, okay, which, which indicates that most likely he did this on a regular basis, maybe around the same time. And this time, something was different. This time, Adam and Eve were, were naked and were hiding because they were, felt shame for the first time because sin had taken place. But, but God walked with them. And then they were, because of their choices, because, and they knew the consequences, and they chose to do it anyway, and therefore sin came. And, and all of a sudden, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you have, you have God appearing to Okay, not walking with, appearing to. You have God and the Holy Spirit coming upon and then leaving. You have, um, you know, you have God appearing to Abraham and to Moses. And you have God dwelling in a tabernacle and then a temple in, in a room behind a curtain that only one person can t- could enter in once a year. So there's this distance, this holy distance between us and him. But he's, he's there. Just not, not, not like he was there. And then Jesus comes, and he is Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. And so now Jesus is God and man, and he's walking among them. But he's tied to a physical place, and it's incredible. And, but Jesus says something fascinating in John, I believe, four, either 14 or 16. He says, it is better that I leave and the Holy Spirit come. What? So like if you and I were sitting around with Jesus, and he said, hey, I'm going to leave, and it's actually a really good thing that I leave. I'd be like, no, no, not a good thing. Peter, they, all the disciples had felt, felt the same way. But Jesus, Jesus understood that something greater was coming. And so God's Spirit comes and dwells in now the life of the believer, which is incredible because now we, now his law and his his commands are written on our hearts and in our minds, and we can know him, but we can't see him. And it's not quite the way it was intended. And so in Revelation, it describes God with his people, God dwelling among his people, God living with his people. And, and, and you see all throughout Scripture this progression of the presence of God in the life of his people. And the Spirit um, came to give us life, to give us life in him. So, the Spirit, uh, life in the Spirit is, um, this next one, offers grace, uh, expresses truth, and bears eternal fruit. So, all three of those things are pretty huge. See, life in the Spirit offers grace because there's a recognition that grace has been given. And so, grace is, is expressed, grace is, is extended. Um, Life in the Spirit expresses truth because there's a recognition that if I'm really nice to people and I don't tell them the truth, ultim- ultimately I'm lying to them. So life in the Spirit expresses truth. Jesus expressed truth like crazy. And sometimes he had to raise his voice. And sometimes he had to speak sharp words. And, some, and a lot of times he had to speak soft and kind and gentle words. But it was truth nonetheless. And life in the Spirit bears eternal fruit. You and I can do all kinds of religious activities and it have no eternal impact 
than anyone else. Only God can make an eternal difference in someone's life. And so when he chooses to work through us, that's his, his glory and, and his power working through us, and we can surrender to that. Life, the next one, life in the spirit is motivated by love, not control. It's motivated by love. And it's a love that frees people to love God more. Not, not a love like American love, a love that um, is, is about helping them love me more or helping them love themselves more. That's not the kind of love that the, the life in the Spirit gives. Life in the Spirit gives a kind of love that helps someone love God more because we know that that's the ultimate love. When they love God more, they know who they are more. They, they, they love themselves more. They love others more. Love flows from a love from God. Next one, life in the Spirit puts their trust in God. So look at uh, Jeremiah, the next couple verses in Jeremiah uh, 7 and 8. Blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose, who trusts, sorry, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water and sends out its roots by the stream. And does not fear when heat comes, for, it leaves re, re, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So turn to the next slide there. So it's a, this is kind of an interesting analogy. So right, you got the picture of the desert shrub. You got the picture of this, this, this living tree that... So what's interesting about this is this tree never has to worry about where it's going to drink, where it's going to find life. Um, it's, not that, it's not that the tree will always be sunshine and 75-degree weather and no storms, no, uh, or no drought, no. What does it say? It says, when heat comes, it said, in the year of drought, what happens? There's no fear. There's no anxiety because this tree knows where his life comes from, where her life comes from, knows where her strength comes from, knows where her identity and his identity comes from. Um, trust in the Lord, not in themselves. It's a beautiful picture. Last one. Life in the Spirit sets one's mind on the things of God. Sets one's mind on the things of God. Turn to Romans 8. This is where we'll end. Romans 8. 1 through 8. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that is a huge verse. Here's why. We could spend this whole time talking about that verse. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, sin is not their problem anymore. Wait a minute, what? No, I didn't say sin won't happen anymore. I said sin is not their problem. Because now when there's sin... There's conviction of sin, not condemnation. Do you know the difference between condemnation 
and conviction. When, when you are condemned versus when you are convicted. See, the, condemn, with condemnation comes separation from God, comes shame, comes me um, holding back from God, me shying away, me running away. That's condemnation. That's the enemy wanting us to not understand who we are in him and not turn to God but to stay in our sin. See, conviction is different. Conviction is from the Spirit that helps us understand our brokenness so that we can turn to Him, we can change our minds, so that we can be healed, so that we can be restored. See, conviction is given for a greater purpose of freedom and love, and, and, and there's a huge difference. So big verse, but we don't have time. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. That's, that's this God's way has now set you free from your way, from my way, from our way. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. Again, the law wasn't the problem. It was those that lived out the law poorly. For the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh not by our own, not by our own strength and power but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit so you know what the word repentance means, some of you, some of you don't. The word repentance is this Greek word, combo word, that means it's change of mind. It's metanoia, change of mind. It's interesting, the mind is, is oftentimes the center of where a lot of stuff begins and, and, and starts, both sin and repentance. It's a change of the mind. He says, you focus on the things of the flesh, you focus on the things of this earth, this world, and, and it leads to something. And, but yet when you focus on the things of God, when you focus on the things of the Spirit, it leads to something else. Let's see what he says. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. It's that, it's that tree. It's that shrub. It's, it's dryness. It's deadness. But to set the, to, to set the mind on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. It's, it's the tree planted by streams of water that trusts in the Lord, that knows where um, his or her life comes from. It's life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so here's the question. Two questions that we're going to end with. Um, what are some things that need to that you need to change your mind about? Um, what are some things that you've focused too much time and attention and energy and mental focus on that God's wanting you to turn from in order to focus on Him? And what are some things that that God has maybe already put in your life, or maybe some new habits that need to start, or maybe I don't know. What, what are some things that God has 
calling you to set your mind upon that would feed life and peace, that would be um, that would produce eternal fruit in your in your life. Um, I want to pray. I'm, I'm just going to spend just a few moments. I'm going to let you think, sit and think through that, and I'm going to pray and close, and then and then we have one more thing, and then we'll be done. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for what you are doing. And I ask right now, God, before we pause and before we um, reflect, I ask that you would speak loudly and speak clearly. And God, give us um, ears to hear what you have to say. God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for being a God who um, still speaks, still reveals still um, leads us and guides us. I ask, God, if any, anyone is, is here that has not placed their faith and trust in you, God, that you would put it on their heart strongly um, to talk to someone, to talk to one of us, to talk to a friend that brought them, but not let this evening pass before they at least ask the question that they need to ask or um, surrender to you. I ask God that, that as you've put anything on our heart tonight, that it wouldn't just stay bottled up, God, that it would, that it would be surrendered to you and that it would t- be turned into action and that it would produce fruit in our life for your glory and your purposes and our great joy. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.